Hello, TechLore community. Today, I have something super special for all of you. Um, I got into a long discussion with Nicholas Merrill. He's the founder of the Calyx Institute, who develops Calyx OS. They do privacy research. They host Tor nodes, Calyx VPN, and of course, their membership with an unlimited LTE hotspot. They're great. What people don't know about Nicholas is he was served a gag order from the FBI when he sued in retaliation and won the case. He even attempted to remove the infamous Patriot Act. He goes into his entire story dealing with all of this, including the NSL gag order, and he also shares his thoughts about privacy and the world he's had to live through, and where and how he lives today, and what he thinks about modern-day privacy. If you want shorter clips, I'm posting clips of this interview on YouTube, Library, and PeerTube, so check out those links below if you don't have time for the full almost two hours, though I highly recommend every minute of it. It is phenomenal. Thank you, Nicholas, for your time, and let's get right into it. My name is Nick Merrill. I'm the executive director of the Calyx Institute, and I have been running that organization, nonprofit organization, for 10 years now. Before that, I ran an internet service provider in New York City. It was one of the first internet providers in New York City, which I started in 1994. And... Uh, I, I guess I'm known for some work that I've done on the issue of privacy in both in terms of internet services and mobile telephony. That's awesome. So uh, this is, I, I want to ask you about the ISP side of this because I didn't know you did that. Uh, one of my dreams, you know, kind of being a, a naive child was to build an internet service provider because mm -hmm. I hate the four giant service providers that take up the entire country. Mm. What's the process of creating an ISP? Because everything I read about required a huge amount of capital. Yeah, so there's a bunch of different ways you can do it. Um, I mean, I can tell you that when I started out, part of what was exciting about it to me was back in 1994, 95, around that time, the internet services industry was pretty much totally unregulated. So I remember thinking about big media stuff at the time that would be like radio, broadcast television, and cable television. They were all heavily regulated industries. And, you know, FCC and uh, city and state you know, uh, franchises and all this kind of super regulated stuff. Whereas the internet at that time had like no regulation. It was just the wild west. And, you know, I remember thinking at the time that if you wanted to, if you wanted to own some type of a broadcast media thing back then, you would have needed 10, $20 million easy to even just buy a license because well, the whole thing is, they don't really issue new licenses for stuff like that. The, the number of licenses that they have is static and that's what it is. And they're not doing new ones. So all that happens now is people buy and sell the existing licenses. And, uh, you know, I was able to start this internet provider for like 10 grand. So what's the process? I mean, back then, uh, I ordered a T1 line. Have you ever heard of a T1 line? Uh, I probably have not. not. That might be before my time. It is. Yeah, it, it's, <laughs> it's really old. So a T1 line was a data, 
a dedicated data line. And it ran at the blistering speed of 1.5 megabits bidirectional. So 1.5 megs up, 1.5 megs down. And this was like the, uh, the T, I don't even know where it comes from. It's, it's a telecom term. The actual thing that I got ran over copper wires. So I think in the end it, it ran over like maybe two or four pairs of copper wires that were just already in the backyard of the apartment building that I lived in in New York. And it came into this apartment that I lived in and I had like maybe two servers and like a dozen modems. And at that time there was these, uh, there was a company called us robotics that made these, uh, modems that originally they, they had pioneered 9,600 bits per second modems. Uh, and they then moved on into like 19,200, 38,400, 57,600 were like the speeds of the modems that you could get. So it, when I first started out, I was offering dial-up access over this T1 line. You know, it's like you you buy, it's like anything. It's like uh, you're, you're, a, you're a sugar distributor. You buy, you know, one metric ton of sugar and you start filling one pound bags of it and you know you paid 500 pounds 500 dollars for your ton of sugar and then you sell each bag for you know 2 bucks and the difference in between is your is your profit it's just straight it's just straight like uh, commodity capitalism it's it's a quantity of goods that you buy you buy low you sell high you know it was it was it was really different back then because it was like the whole thing that even made it possible was was the beginning of Linux. If it wasn't for Linux being free, then I couldn't have afforded to do it because prior to there being Linux, you would have have to have bought commercial some kind of commercial Unix like Sun, or there was a there was a commercial Linux that was called BSD, and those I think those licenses by themselves would have been the ten grand. So. It was only the fact that Linux existed and was free that I was able to even start doing this. And, and everything was super, like, you, you would just be blown away by some of this shit. Like, to install Linux on the first server, I had to I had to buy boxes and boxes of three and a half inch floppy disks. And I had to, I, I, in my memory, I think it was like over 100 floppy disks. So I had to put the media, the install media, on like 100 and something floppy disks. And if there was even one bad block on any of them, the whole thing would fail. So it was like this insane process where it said, like, insert disk one, now insert disk two. And this went on for like 100 and something disks, loading the install media, and then finally, in, you know, installing it on the hard drive. It was this painstaking process. It took, it took me a long time. I started in this little apartment with two servers. Then I moved to a bigger place. Then I moved to a, an office. And that, so really, I think that business only was in three places. But then later, I ended up having a partner in Europe uh, who lived in the Netherlands. And so we had like a sister company over there by the same name, but it was it was like the European branch and it got more complicated later. Then the whole dot com boom came and there was like a lot of money being thrown around. Um, I was not into that. So I was kind of just turned off by that and I didn't really participate in it, even though I was like invited to participate in it, but I sort of 
declined because I just thought that uh, it was gross. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was it was a crazy time. The the nineties and early two thousands in that business was just crazy. There was there was so much money being thrown around. There was so much people were starting the stupidest companies and getting just insane amounts of money for them. Yeah. It was really it was interesting. Can I, I, can I, I'm sure I can guess your thoughts on lots of the cryptocurrency projects, which has a lot of uh, resemblances to the dot com bubble. Uh, yeah, I was just talking about that with when I told you I was on a call before this, and I was on a call with someone that's very involved with cryptocurrency, and I said that I I feel openly kind of just antagonistic towards the cryptocurrency scene because I think it's bullshit. But I mean, on some level. I like, I like the shit talking that that it, that they had at the beginning, where they were like central banks are bad, cartels, price fixing currencies is weird. You know, we're not into that. This is going to be an anarchist, free love utopia, blah 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 thing where we're you know we're going to control everything or, or no one's going to control it or whatever they were saying it, and that sounded like okay. I could I could kind of see that, but. Of course, I just feel like it's part of human nature that like anything that goes on like that, there's going to be it's going to end up with a bunch of oligarchs controlling everything, you know, and that's kind of what happened, I think. Yeah, it seems like I, I do think the core mission is still there with some of the original projects like Bitcoin and Monero. I feel like mm -hmm. Monero still very much has that anarchy interpretation to it. But yeah. I, I do agree there is lots of new projects coming out. There's new ones every single day. And you yeah. have a lot of the one that most was most disappointing to me was Substratum. Mm, I don't even know that one. There's so there's so many of it I don't even know exactly. what half of them are. And and that that's probably good because Substratum was it, it was it was supposed to be a new model for the internet where things were private by default and you host your own nodes. It's kind of like Tor in a way. Yeah. But um, you're pretty much rewarded in cryptocurrency for running a node at your house. Sure. And uh, yeah, it was a total scam. So <laughs> it's just, no, I mean it, I've heard. I've heard of a lot of ideas like that, and I support all of those principles, you know? Don't get me wrong. Like, that sounds great. Um, but, yeah, I think there's just... It, it, there is There are parallels. There, there are definite parallels between this, what's going on with cryptocurrency and the, the dot-com thing, that the amount of money being thrown around attracts creepy, greedy people. And then... They suck up all the oxygen in the room, and they, the people who are the best bullshitters suck up all the oxygen. People who are really serious but aren't that good at bullshitting or marketing or who are too moral or too... They're, they're not shameless enough to just say whatever the hell they have to say to get the money, get squeezed out. And that was kind of what I saw in the dot-com era. And I think that's similar to what's going on with the whole cryptocurrency thing. Um, you know, when people say this is going to be the biggest wealth transfer in, in the history of mankind, like that sounds cool, but I would want to see it from the very rich to the poor. But I don't see that being the way that this is going to work out. Yeah, I think it, it's it's ironic that it, it requires the centralization of the exchanges for the most part. Um, they seem to be the ones who have a lot of control currently. 
but sure to get to get back onto the isp thing how yeah it, because it seems like calyx obviously calyx the main source of income is the hotspots which is kind of like your own isp in a way obviously you don't control the the actual internet service provider but you obviously you give out these hotspots to people and give them internet was the do you think that the original stuff you were doing in building your own ISP, do you think that naturally led into Calix? How where's the connection there and how did you establish the Calix Institute? So it all there there's a whole arc to the story. And it starts out that in nineteen ninety four or nineteen ninety five when I started the internet provider, I was young. Like, how old are you? Can I ask how old are you how old are you? I, I don't publicly share, though I'm still in college. People, yeah. people take a lot of guesses. So if, if you're like normal college age, if you're not a non-traditional student, then you're like 19, 20, 21, something like that. I'm guessing. Or you could be non-traditional. You could be 24, 25. I don't know. No comment. You could be, you could be 18. <laughs> so, okay. But, but you're, I, I get a vague sense. You're, you're like, I'm like 48. So you're like less than half my age. But, and like when I started the Calyx internet provider thing, I guess I was 22 and I dropped out of school. So I was more in the, I was in the age range that I think you're in. And I had this whole dream of like changing the world. I thought I could work with uh, people that other people that wanted to change the world. And I thought that the internet was this amazing tool where you could reach out to people literally across the planet, which you couldn't have previously done. It extended people's reach like people that didn't even have a huge budget and it made it so that they could like talk to millions of people instantly and not just people in this country, but people in countries all over the place. So you could organize huge movements. I, I thought it was a really huge thing. I saw that. I think I did truthfully see that, you know, I had a vision of that much of it and that was why I got involved in it. 10 years later, I was still running the thing. That's when I got this national security letter thing. And at that point I really started to reconsider what I was doing because a lot had happened in 10 years, and I ended up understanding that even though I wanted to base my life around trying to change the world and make it a better place, that that wasn't necessarily a way that I could make a living and feed myself and pay my rent. So the people that I wanted to work with most were super poor, and it took someone explaining all this to me that uh, that I needed to figure out a way to actually have a stable income in order to to be able to help people and to do the type of work that I wanted to do or to make the change that I wanted to make that I that I wasn't going to be it wasn't going to be conducive to like making producing actual change to be like constantly on the verge of starving or like not being or you know having your landlord chase after you because you didn't pay the rent um, so what I ended up doing was working for big businesses. I worked for these advertising agencies because, you know, New York is the home of Madison Avenue and uh, big advertising agencies. And I ended up working for them and hosting websites for them. Um, and I ended up having some really blue chip clients. Like I was hosting the website for Ikea. Uh, I was hosting the website for Mitsubishi Motors of America. Uh, I was hosting Snapple iced tea and Tanqueray gin and, you know, Amtrak Acela and, and a whole bunch of other things you like, like that. Snapple? 
yeah, it's okay. It's okay. All right, all right. I think it's okay too. Okay. I only, I only, <laughs> I only personally like the the ice, the lemon iced tea one. I don't really like a lot of their flavors. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> and I don't, I don't, I don't drink it anymore because I, it's not good for me. But, um, the 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 thing was though, if you think back to like what I was saying, I, I'd wanted to change the world. I got down this tangential wild goose chase trying to figure out how to make enough money so that I could that I could give stuff away to the people that I wanted to help but then pretty soon I got sort of wrapped up in making making sure there was enough resources and making sure that the thing was sustainable and what happened was I, I just realized by the 10th year when, when I started getting involved with this legal battle that it wasn't real. I wasn't doing what I had originally set out to do, and because I was, I was, I was in it. I was in the middle of it for so long, and I worked really, really hard. Like my work habits were such that I sort of like worked for like sixteen hours, and then I slept for eight hours, and then I got up and worked for sixteen hours again. And it was just like that for like ten years. But it was like I was working for myself, so I didn't resent it. It wasn't like someone was cracking a whip over me forcing me to do it I, I i chose to do this and i was happy because i felt that i was my own boss and i was free and i was doing whatever i wanted but at the 10-year point it sort of hit me that this wasn't really what i had originally wanted to do i didn't really want to be working for these ad agency people and these big companies which i didn't even really respect or like that much i didn't feel like they were actually adding too much to the world in general so I sort of got disillusioned with it, started to think about what it was that I'd originally set out to do. And then, you know, part of what helped me have that thinking was getting this, this national security letter from the FBI and then having to do a lot of thinking about it uh, in a very isolated and like introverted way because I wasn't allowed to tell anyone about it. So somehow... I spent a lot of time thinking about it, and I, I sort of pictured. Do you mind? Do you mind explaining the the letter you got? Like for context mm -hmm. for people who don't know about the story. Mm -hmm. What happened was after after September 11th, after 9/11, uh, the government kind of went a little bit overboard in terms of wanting to have insight and control over all information interchange, all phone calls, all internet traffic, all money moving around, everything. They just wanted to know everything. And because I ran this internet service provider, I got swept up into this whole thing. So I got this letter. This letter said that I couldn't tell anyone that I got the letter. And it raised a huge quandary for me it, it, it was like a, a legal and ethical quandary and it was and it, and it had a lot of fear wrapped up into it uh because crazy stuff was happening around that time um like at that time the president said that he could declare any person just on his own without a court and without anything he, he could just declare anyone to be an enemy combatant and put them in guantanamo in cuba in, in a secret prison forever just on his own. 
and it was really, and then he started to do it. And then there was these like mass roundups of Muslim men that was going on and like people were just disappearing and it sort of started to seem like some super dystopian like fantasy novel of, of like what happens when, when a society just becomes lawless and uh, rule of law just crumbles and, and disintegrates. And, and it turns out that the, that rule of law was, was really just on the honor system the whole time, that it wasn't really mandatory. It wasn't really enforced in any way. One and, of my favorite things I've heard about that was in uh, Cory Doctorow. You brought mm-hmm, him up mm-hmm, in, in mm-hmm. our messages. I, I read yeah. Little Brother. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the biggest things, one of the biggest takeaways was a terrorist attack is most successful when it actually makes a long-term impact on a country. Yeah. And uh, I think in some ways that was one of the biggest successes of 9-11. We're still For suffering sure. the consequences of it today For sure. because of the fear. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. That's totally true. So... I got this thing. I couldn't talk to anyone about it. And then I had like, I don't know if you know this concept of like, it's like a, it's like a story from like, I don't know, from like Buddhism or something of like a, a man goes and climbs this top of to the top of this mountain and just goes and sits there like in the, in the cross-legged Buddha pose and just thinks about like, what is, what is enlightenment or something? Do you know what I mean? There's, there's a thing where people isolate themselves. It's like a, it's like a story. I think the, uh, the original Buddha, I think it was 40 days sitting under a tree. I think. Okay. Okay. But there's also one about sitting on top of a mountain somewhere, right? Like climbing a mountain and just sitting on a, on a ledge somewhere by yourself. I, I'm not sure about that one. It, it doesn't matter. But, but yeah, yeah you your can, point you still can, stands. Yeah. And so I felt like because I couldn't talk to anyone about what was going on, that it was sort of like that for me that, that I had, I could only think about it in my own mind and I couldn't talk it through with anyone and I couldn't really bounce ideas off anyone. And, uh, so I, you know, maybe, maybe because I grew up as an only child, I was already pretty comfortable with just having long trains of thought inside my own head and not talking with anyone about it. But this just sort of exacerbated that and, and forced it, forced me to, uh, to internalize even more because I was afraid to tell anyone because the threat was that I would go to prison if I told anyone about it uh, and who knows for how long and you know under what circumstances. So I, I didn't talk to anyone about it, but I started to think about the problem of privacy in, in the internet and in telecom. And I thought about how I was pursuing a strategy at that point, the, the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, had become my attorneys. I was suing the FBI and the Department of Justice, challenging the constitutionality of the Patriot Act. And I, so I was pursuing a path of litigation in the courts, right? And it seemed to me that there were sort of three ways we could deal with the problem that we had found ourselves in in the United States at that time. You could, you could try to litigate it and you could, you could say, Hey, the constitution says we have the right to free speech and you can't search our stuff without a warrant. You know, you, you learned all the stories about the revolutionary war and what the, what the King had done and why they wrote the, the bill of rights the way they did. So you can sit there and argue all these points. Hey, the constitution says this, your you know, constitution says X, you're doing Y you have to do bring what you're doing in compliance with the constitution or 
you could go through the, the legislative process. So you can go to Congress and you can say, hey, Congress, um, you need to pass laws that say that they can't do Y. You know, they have to do X, like, like the Constitution says. And the third thing you could do is try to take a technical approach to deal with it, where you use encryption and you redesign the networks in a creative way so that uh, so that they're not just building up huge stores of data. Historically, like phone providers and internet providers collected all the data on every single website you went to, what pages you were going to on the website, whether you were just reading or whether you were posting, all the timestamps, everything, and just stockpiled it. And the phone companies, like even now, AT&T supposedly has over 30 years of like phone records on every single person. The black rooms. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, they also, even when it is encrypted, there is still some information that can get with deep packet inspection. Sure. It's, it's spooky. Sure. Um, it, it's interesting you brought up those three solutions because mm-hmm. I feel like they're applicable to a lot of the privacy concerns. I feel like sure. on a broader level, uh, us, we can obviously fight for privacy on, on our own using things like signal end-to-end encryption, Tor, VPNs. We, we have these tools accessible to us, but it's kind of, if we only did that, it's just a cat, cat and mouse game. Uh, uh, yeah, it, it kind of has to be addressed on a systemic level, I think. Exactly. All three parts need to come together for long-term change. Sure. Um, it, it's just an interesting way of looking at it. I like how you brought that up. So I guess this this is a long-winded way of getting back to your question, though. You said, like, wh- how did I get into starting this institute thing and why? And the whole reason was that I spent, ultimately, I spent, like, 12 years in litigation with the FBI and the Department of Justice. And, like, I would say, like, we won three huge battles, but we kind of lost the war because we couldn't, ever get the case to go all the way to the Supreme Court. So even though court courts repeatedly said that the part of the constitu- the part of the Patriot Act that we were challenging was unconstitutional and it was against the 4th Amendment and the 1st Amendment and the 5th Amendment until those decisions didn't stick to the whole country unless you would get the Supreme Court to agree. And the government, the DOJ and FBI part of the government, they just kept appealing and appealing and appealing because they had unlimited time and they were sort of working in conjunction with the Congress to undercut this lawsuit. So I started to understand that it wasn't really a level playing field and I probably wasn't ever really going to be able to beat them. And in some ways, they also chipped away at the impact that I could possibly have in really interesting strategic ways. They undercut and they pulled the rug out from under what I was able to do. Um, and so I started to just feel that, like, I, I wouldn't say that that litigation is hopeless and I wouldn't say that the legislative process is hopeless, but I am more disillusioned about uh, their viability now than I was at the beginning. And I was already not especially convinced that they would work at the beginning. Um, but I was willing to try. And so I think at the end of that long experience, I started to feel like, well, I'm going to go full force into the technical solutions, uh, angle. And I'm going to try to work on that because I'm not a lawyer. 
<clears throat> and I'm not a lobbyist and I'm not, you know, I, I, I spent time, I spent all these years with this court case. I, I went down to Washington and I, I presented in front of all these congressional people. I did, I did a lot of this stuff, but I just felt like I, given, given my limited resources, my limited background and education and abilities that, that I would be better served and I would more likely be able to have an impact if I just worked on the technical part. And so that's why I started the Calix Institute. Before talking a little bit about uh, Calix, a quick question. After going all of, after going through all of that, it, it seems like the whole. I feel like the, the main reason you even chased after this might have been a moral obligation. You believed in in that everyone deserved a private life, but I think you might have also believed in the Constitution and the country itself. And I don't think you liked the direction things were headed. Is that a valid interpretation? Yeah, one hundred percent. So, so my question is: after going through that process and figuring out, well, the odds are completely stacked against an individual who's trying to make a positive change, have you lost faith in the system to some extent in the United States, or are you still confident um, that things will slowly change? I mean, the thing is, you know, like I've, I've seen a lot of stuff over the past twenty years or whatever that makes me skeptical of how our system works because I feel that there are inherent weaknesses in it and there are like contradictions in it and our our country and its system is kind of super antiquated. I remember learning years later about how many of the European countries rewrote their constitutions uh, after the Second World War, some of them even as late as like the 1970s, and they had privacy built into the Constitution, which we don't really have explicitly, and they had women's rights built in, and they had protection for the rights of the disabled built in. They had all kinds of modern stuff we didn't have in our Constitution because of that just wasn't really a thing back in the 1700s. And I started to feel like our system is like... It's a weird patchwork system where we've tried to plug all the, the holes in our constitution with adding different amendments and laws and stuff on top of it. But it's not what, what they did in Europe was just scrap the, the old constitutions from the from the 18th century and start over at some point. They had like constitutional conventions, which we could have, but we never do. And so <clears throat> I kind of do feel like there is something really super messed up. I think a lot of people think this, that there's something super messed up about our country in terms of the the level of corruption where like the people with the money always end up controlling everything. So it's like, if you really want to make a change, let's say, let's say in the environment was your thing. You really just want to have the coal plant stop spewing sulfur and you really want to have chemical companies not pollute the rivers. I'm just going to use that as an example. Um, the people that run the factories and the people that do the polluting, they pay the Congress to keep things the way they are and to loosen the rules. And I kind of have gotten to the point where I feel like if environmental people want to be able to beat them, they need to actually pay Congress more than the polluters, which is a super cynical point of view. And it's kind of like disgusting 
but it's just sort of accepting that this is how our system works. It's whoever pays the most gets to make the rules. Whoever's got the most money makes the rules and, and the power. So, I mean, do I think that like our country is hopeless? No. I mean, I, I would, I would, I could have left. I would have left if I thought it was hopeless. I'm, I definitely don't. I'm here. I'm in it for the long haul. Like I'm not leaving. I'm here. I, I deliberately set up in this country. I had the opportunity to move to Europe when I owned that company in Europe. Um, I didn't do it. Um, you know, no, I, I feel, I feel like a sense of connection to the country. Um, you know, part of what, what it was, was I took, when I was in college, I took constitutional law as an undergrad and I was dabbling with the thought of being a lawyer and studying the law. And I was really interested in it. And actually that class though, made me realize that it seemed like the good people, whoever they are, but in my mind, whoever the good people were, were losing the majority of the time. It seemed like it was like 60, 40, the bad people would win. And it was, it was, it made me think that if I went into that business, that I would be unhappy because I would be, it would be a life of disappointment. At the same time, I, f I found some, I learned like th there's uh, people that I found that were like heroes of mine that I discovered through that law class that are still like my heroes today. So it's complicated, you know, there's not a simple answer. I have not lost faith in the system, but I have a more cynical and jaded view and I view it all as shades of gray now, not, not so black and white. Got it. All right. Thanks for opening up. Now, so now into the story, you have the Cal the Calix Institute, my bad, uh, established and was the first thing you offered the hotspot and what other projects have kind of come about over the years and are there some notable origin stories of why certain projects came to be? Yeah, okay. So, no, the hotspot thing didn't come around for several years uh, and it came about by accident somehow the at the beginning i started the institute in 2010 and it wasn't until around maybe 2013 or 14 that we got access to the mobile internet plan with a with a nonprofit partner that we have the first few years i had this idea to try to build a prototype of an encrypted isp like a zero knowledge internet service provider and it seemed to me that if I could get access to, so it's an industry term. There's an industry term in telecom called last mile technology. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. It refers to like uh, the last mile technology is either like, let's say a DSL circuit or a cable modem that runs to your house. It literally means the technology that is in the last mile that connects to your house. Uh, that gets you online. It could be wireless. Could be could be the wireless network. Uh, it could be anything. It could be the the, the Elon Musk satellite thing. Um, that is it, one of my questions for you later. <laughs> yeah. So any of those are, are last mile technologies. It's how you get people online. Um, but what I was thinking about was, and I kind of feel like a lot of startup ideas are that you take you take two existing things. 
So you take uh, you take a drone, a, a drone that you bought at a some hobbyist store, and then you take I don't know I'm going to make something up like you take a Geiger counter, and you you duct tape the Geiger counter to the drone, and now you've invented some new thing, right? Because it's a flying radiation detector, you know. Um, and so what I was trying to do was take any generic last mile technology and then attach a privacy layer to it and figure out a way that we could have an internet service provider that would not have insight into what the customer was doing because my thinking went back to myself as an internet service provider with the government demanding information from me on what our customers were doing. So I wanted to figure out what's the solution to that. And so originally I was just working on that and we did some fundraising on Indiegogo at the time and raised all this money, which at the time seemed like a lot, but now in retrospect, it's not, it wasn't that much, but uh, we raised a bunch of money to work on that. Um, I had hoped that at the end of that fundraiser that I was going to be able to deliver it. And the, the, sad thing was, I think, I think we set the goal at like 2 million and I was going to build a data center and I was going to do this and do that. And I was going to do all, hire all these people. And I think in the end we got like 40, 40 something thousand dollars. And it was like, you know, really a spectacular flop in some ways because it was so far from the goal, but I decided to just keep going anyway, because I think one option was I could refund all the uh, the donations. And then the other option was, well, you have to now completely lower your expectations and readjust your targeting because your budget is like one thousandth of what it was supposed to have been in, in your fantasy plan. You know what I mean? So I decided to continue on, but we did not have the, the mobile internet thing at that time. And that only came several years later. And even then, to be honest, I didn't, I wasn't able to make something interesting out of it. I think we got it in maybe 2013 or so, could have been 2014, but nothing came of it until 2016, the summer of 2016, the summer to really the fall of 2016. Uh, and that was all because uh, I met Cory Doctorow at a hacker uh, convention thing in New York called Hope. You know Hope? You heard of Hope? I have not. Okay, so Hope is a thing called Hackers on Planet Earth. And it is a thing that's been going on for like, I'm going to say 27. Maybe I'm confusing it with DEF CON. I don't know how many Hopes there have been. Something like 20. More than 20. It's, it's, it's an annual thing. It's, it's like a big convention. It's been in New York forever. 2600 Magazine. Uh, do you know 2600 Magazine? That I do. Um, mm -hmm. Not to make you feel old, but it was kind of a historical cybersecurity yeah. book and it yeah. was uh, it referred to like some uh, old magazines used in the hacker space i yeah. saw they recently posted uh something on their twitter i think they were in support of black lives matter and of mm -hmm. course that caused some controversy mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah like i'm sitting here i'm in my basement lair i have a little desk in my basement and i have this stacks of old 2600 magazines which i started collecting when i was like 14 and they so they ran this hacker convention. We, uh, the institute, had a table in their vendor area, and at that table, uh, and they they give 
they pretty much give away these vendor tables to nonprofits. Like they, they charge you like a token amount, like a hundred bucks or something, but then they let you have a vendor table there. Other companies there are like selling books or they're selling uh, soldering kits or whatever. They're actually selling stuff. So they're like commercial outfits and they're paying significant amounts, I guess, for the space. But, but 2,600 uh, being a, a very community focused organization has always been super kind to nonprofits and they gave us this space for like practically nothing. And we even split it with a couple of other organizations, this little tiny, like six foot by eight foot table. We like each had like two feet of it and <clears throat> we're trying to sign people up to become members of the Institute and other ones were trying to raise money for whatever things they were doing. And I met Corey Doctorow and he became a member of the organization. He, 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 he knew about me because he knew about the national security letter case and he had written about it. Um, but we had never met until that time. And then he asked me, uh, he said he was going to go on the road that summer in his RV and he was going to bring the hotspot with him and he was going to continue updating Boing Boing while he drove around the country. And he said something like, if, if I write about your organization and this membership program you have, uh, if, if you got a lot of uh, people signing up really quickly, would you be able to handle that? And the funny thing was at that time I was like working in my basement all alone. I had no help. And I just told him, yeah, yeah, of course, bring it. Like whatever you can, whatever will happen will happen. Like, I, yeah, I have, I have all the resources in the world. Don't worry. And I just totally lied because I just was blowing smoke. And I also didn't really understand how deep his following was at the time. And so then I think this was in June, maybe June, July, something like that. I didn't really hear from him again. He went off and I guess he did his road trip. He came home. Uh, and then in September, I was out of town and I was at one of the tour developers conferences. And all of a sudden the web traffic, I watch it like obsessively. As I was watching the web traffic on the Calix data center back in New York. And all of a sudden it spiked up to like 20 times what it had been like instantly. And I was like, what the hell is going on? I thought maybe it was a DDoS attack or something, but it wasn't. It turned out that Corey had written an article about our membership program. It was the article I sent you. And instantly like tons and tons of traffic, all these people retweeting, you know, his link to the article. And like at that point, things just got really big, like something like a quarter million dollars in donation came in in a week. And that's awesome. <clears throat> yeah, it was it was really nuts. Uh, the problem was, though, I was working in my basement all alone and I had to somehow fulfill all these orders and, and all these membership packages. And I had to, you know, and do and do all these mailings. I mean, it was like a, it was a gargantuan task and I had no one to help me, but I, I ended up, uh, just, you know, uh, through brute force and blood, sweat and tears, just, just worked my way through it, did it. And somehow the fact that we're still in the position that we're in today ultimately goes back to that article from Corey, because we, I was very close to 
throwing in the towel at that point when I went to that that one hope conference like I was pretty much out of money it wasn't working and I was just losing faith that it was ever going to really work and I was almost ready to just chalk it up to like well I tried but it didn't but I was wrong and then Corey really pulled the thing out for us so that's when we got this wireless thing and then you know moving forward we we figured out some different ways to like keep the momentum going that has been the main way that we're funding everything so uh all the work that we do with the phone development is through that you know maintaining our data center is paid for through that our free vpn our instant messaging services all the, all the stuff that we do including the grants program. Now we have a grants program where we're giving money out to different organizations that are doing interesting work. Uh, that's all through the membership program. We've since gotten to the point where we apply for grants sometimes from grant giving organizations. And sometimes we get them, but they, they don't really add up to a very large percentage of our budget. But, we're, but at least we're getting some now. So we're working on sort of diversifying our funding sources um and yeah so that's super cool i i you guys publish your uh your annual earnings mm -hmm. and i think i saw on, on twitter it was like 1.8 million in 2019 is that right i don't know the number off the top of my head but it could be um something like that yeah so that's i mean, I mean that's that's crazy seeing um that's a lot of growth in just a few years so that's that's yeah. Yeah. And to be honest, in this year, things have grown tremendously, uh, which is counterintuitive. You, you might think, uh, you know, a lot of businesses are suffering super badly during the pandemic. And uh, but it's actually uh, for, for a number of reasons, things really took off this year. There was like several reasons. One was that we offered quarterly memberships rather than just annual prepay um, when I was doing all the billing and bookkeeping by myself and all the membership stuff by myself. One thing that I know from being in the internet service provider business is that believe it or not, the billing part and the, the bookkeeping part is probably the hardest part of the whole thing. And I know that that's actually not my strongest part but my strongest suit, you know, like in, 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 in the whole business spectrum of all the things you have to do. I decided, I made it kind of a strategic decision that like the best way for me to not get swamped and like destroyed by the bookkeeping part was to only do annual prepay um, so that each person would pay once a year instead of 12 times a year. But, but the problem with that was it made it so that in order to join you, you had to have 500 bucks in your pocket, which if you read much, most many Americans don't. I mean, there's always been articles for years saying if people get hit with an unexpected $500 medical bill, they'll be bankrupt. And so people had always been asking us like, you know, this is, we want to support your organization. And actually this is super interesting and kind of a spectacular value in terms of the member benefits that you give people when they join. But like, coming up with that money is hard. Like I'm on a fixed income or I'm on disability or, you know, whatever people all have different reasons why it's hard for them. We, so we switched from only offering 
annual to having annual plus quarterly. This is during 2020. There was something that had been planned for a while, obviously not knowing that the pandemic was coming. Uh, and then we got another write-up in another media thing, which was a, a forum for like RV enthusiasts. And also the third thing, the third factor was literally the pandemic itself. And I don't know exactly what was going on there, but I feel like uh, people thought that it was like the way I thought that it was going to be anarchy and, uh, and there would be like massive uh, disruptions to society and people would be wandering around. I think a lot of people wondered what, what was coming and a lot of people wanted the ability to have broadband connectivity, but be, have the freedom to like come and go as they pleased because you know, it used to be if you wanted broadband, you needed to have to be connected with a wire somehow, a cable of some sort, whether it's television cable, DSL, something. There really hasn't historically been an unlimited wireless connectivity option uh, until recently. So our revenues are like way up in, in the year 2020. And the cool thing that that enabled us to do is just so much more uh, program activities. That's why we now have like four developers working full time on Calyx OS and why our membership department is now doubled in size and why we have this grants program where we're giving out money to all these different organizations that are making educational material and working with kids on privacy education, uh, why we're giving money to all these researchers who are creating histories of hacking uh, info, you know, we, it's like it's given us the ability to sort of actually do all the things we always wanted to do, but didn't have the money to do previously. So it's it's been like a really crazy time for us because we also had to close our office. You know, we're based in New York City. So if you remember how bad the pandemic was in New York with all those like freezer trucks outside the hospitals and stuff. I don't know if you followed that in the news, like how scary it was in like March or April. We had to close our offices. Uh, we all had to go work from home and it was, it was like super disruptive for us uh, and, and, and incredibly hard to adjust. And of course we still had to keep paying for our office and all that stuff, but we couldn't go there. So, uh, and now we've ended up, you know, slowly moving back into the office, at least partway, like we've dipped our toes in. Um, like we don't have everyone back in the office, but like we take turns going in so that we're not all together breathing on each other or whatever. But yeah, it's been like a really wild ride in 2020, uh, full of scary stuff and disruptive stuff, but also like massive growth at the same time. That's great. Well, it's cool that I guess it's nice that you do have that one sustainable source of income. Um, one of my, well, that's not a gripe, but one of the most unfortunate things that I see happening is great projects that don't grow because of lack of funding, Yeah, which is a very common issue in the, the open source world. Absolutely, it is. And there's just, there's no easy way for a business model. Unless right. you rely on donations, but typically donations aren't enough right. for someone to make a living or to have them especially grow while making a living. True. 
So it's cool that you do finally have that sustainable income source. And now you're starting to have the opportunity to create all these different projects like yeah. Catalyx OS, um, the privacy research you're doing, the stuff with the kids, everything else. I mean, that's just that's just incredible. I think that's kind of the dream. And that's kind of why I feel like I'm living the dream sometimes, too, because mm-hmm. this is I love doing this. And I get to do it full time. And now we sure. have we have two employees. And the only reason this is possible is because I just happen to be in a lucky position where we're making money off of this. Yeah. But yeah. if that wasn't there, I wouldn't be able to be doing this all day, every day. Sure. And that makes me really sad to think about that that is the reality for almost everybody. I think it's sure. kind of rare to have a scenario where not only do you have that sustainable income source, but you also still have the control to do what you want. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you can obviously have a Mozilla situation, though mm-hmm. th- I wouldn't want a Mozilla situation because I don't want 90% of what I do to be dictated by a larger corporation. Right. Um, so, yeah, that, that's just congrats to you for having that. I, I think that that's, it's awesome, and I think a lot of people wish they had it. But I think it's also good inspiration for people who want to do that. I, I think yeah. it's, it's possible. It does, it does make the Institute kind of a unicorn within the world of open source organizations and privacy organizations in that uh, <clears throat> I watched, you know, other organizations, the ones that don't, the ones that just ask people, if you like what we're doing, give us money, uh, struggle. And they're very vulnerable to like changes in the economy, recessions, things like that. Um, both and and also for-profit businesses i mean where i live in in new york uh like all the small businesses are drying up like they're almost like half of them have to be gone now um it's a super tough time and if we were reliant on grants you know the grant the grant stuff comes and goes um there is a thing called the open tech fund I don't know if you ever heard of them, but they fund, they have historically funded Tor and Signal and a whole bunch of projects that you know and probably love. Um, but they they get their funding from the U.S. government in in a allocation from Congress every year, and their funding basically dried up, and so a lot of projects are like they were totally dependent on this one single source of income, and now they're left in a lurch, uh, really suddenly with with no warning. Um, so, uh, we're working on diversifying our funding sources actually, because we don't want to be totally dependent on, on the hotspot membership benefit thing as a, as a draw. We're trying to figure out different ways that we can have different ways of giving, of giving benefit to people and, and making people's lives better, but also engaging with them enough that they want to donate and support our work. So like sustainability is, is sort of like our mission, I think for 2021, figuring out how to diversify. So to, to kind of summarize where we are so far, um, we kind of started with your history. We worked into how that tied into Calyx and how it generated revenue, how you've kind of, turned it into what it was in 2013 slash 2014 into 2020 and also your goals for 2021. The, I guess the main missing piece, which is probably one of the, I guess it's the elephant in the room is the FBI case. And we kind of talked about it earlier, but 
I I haven't done much research into the FBI case. I I know about it on a broad level. I know you usurped a gag order. I know that you won in some regards, though I know obviously you didn't. You, you weren't successfully able to remove the Patriot Act, though I, to my knowledge you did attempt to do that. Though correct me if I'm wrong when you explain the story. Um, but just any context, and if you can go through that story and kind of share with myself and, and the audience what happened there, because I don't think many people have actually been served a gag order and I guess survived survived the tale, kind of. Sure. No, your summary was, was actually totally right. I don't think you got anything wrong. You know, I, I ran this internet service provider and as was the custom in those days and, and largely still is today, companies that transit people's data, they tend to keep a lot of records on what's happening, what the people are doing for a bunch of reasons. Um, sometimes it's because they view the data as a potential gold mine, that it, it has its own intrinsic value, like data mining. Uh, other times it's for legitimate business purposes, like they want to be able to predict their growth. So they want to know how much, if they need X number of gigabytes of bandwidth this year, how many they're going to need next year so that they can plan properly. So there's a lot of reasons why companies would stockpile data on people. Another reason is so that uh, people can market stuff to those people because an internet service provider or a mobile phone provider can really tell pretty much everything about what a person's interests are, what types of places they, they frequent, what types of things they buy. And by knowing all that stuff, you can figure out how to sell them more stuff. So this is potentially extremely valuable info. So I wasn't really doing any of that stuff. I wasn't really marketing. I wasn't selling the data. I wasn't doing anything like that. But it, it sort of was just common practice in... Uh, it's hard to explain why, why it was common practice to like save all your logs and keep all your historical logs basically forever. I've read this. I've read that it was very common for pretty much every website and everybody to just store the data because you didn't know what it was going to be useful for in the future. Yeah. And like, I mean, it goes back to just like the default setup of, of Linux. Like Linux was set up to log everything and then to rotate and compress the logs and archive them basically indefinitely. So like, unless you went out of your way to change that, uh, with having the foresight to see that this was going to be problematic, like that was just how it was going to work out of the box. So we ended up having all this data. The government came to us at one point in 2004. What happened was I was sitting in my office working. I got a phone call. Uh, the person on the other end of the phone line said that they were calling from the FBI and that they had a letter for me. And I said something like, okay, but they didn't say, they didn't like, explain how I was going to get it. I just assumed they said letter. I assumed that they, were, they meant they were giving me a heads up and they were going to drop it in the mail. Uh, but like I, I, I said, okay. And I didn't even know if this was real or like a prank call or whatever. I used to get all kinds of weirdos calling me. I didn't know if it was real or not. And uh, I said, okay. And then I just hung up the phone. I went back to work and I didn't really pay it that much mind. But like within an hour, someone was knocking at my door and it was an actual FBI agent who came to my office uh, with this letter. 
So the, the guy wanted me to sign some kind of a receipt uh, confirming that, I, that it was delivered. And before I even did that, I wanted to read it because, you know, it was like super suspenseful at that point. Here's this like gray haired older man in a trench coat who pulls out this wallet with this huge FBI ID in it and stuff. I mean, it was like, like in the movies. Uh, and I read this letter and it says that I have to give them all this data. And it says that I can't tell any person that they've uh, visited me or asked for the data. And it, it doesn't even say that they, that they're asking for it. It says that they demand it and that I have to provide it. So, so ultimately it's like a three page letter. The whole third page is literally just a bulleted list of all the things I have to give them. And it's signed by a person that I ended up trying to look up and figure out who it was, but like one of the top lawyers in the whole FBI. And I actually said to the, I had the, I had the presence of mind and maybe this went back to my constitutional law, my one constitutional law class that I took. And I said to the agent, like, what about my, what about my lawyer? What about my business partners? You know, like I, cause it said I could tell no person. It was super, um, absolute. And, and he said like something to the effect of like, I'm just here delivering the letter. I'm not really qualified or in a position to answer your questions, something like that. Like he just refused to answer me and just acted like he was just a delivery guy, but he was clearly, you know, he, he clearly knew more than what he was telling me. I, I felt anyway, he didn't answer me, but, but the, the, the irony of that was like the question that I asked him right there hit to the heart of one of the central legal problems with national security letters, which is that prior to September 11th and prior to the Patriot Act, in order for the government to have seized records like they were trying to do with my company, they would have had to have gone to court. So you have a system of checks and balances and the FBI would have had to have made claims in front of the court backed up with evidence that they had some type of proof that a crime had occurred or was likely to occur and that that they had some evidence that there would be um, evidence that they needed to seize at this company and then the the court the judge at that point would typically either agree with their argument or would push back on them and would say like, Hey, you know, this is really not convincing. You don't, you haven't really convinced me that, that they're likely to have anything. So there was a, an, a theoretically adversarial uh, situation that they had to go in where they had to convince someone from a different branch of government. Uh, you know, the FBI is part of the executive branch of the government under the president, the judicial branch is separate and independent, supposedly. This is what I learned about in school. So one branch has to convince the other one and get their approval before they can do this search. With the Patriot Act, they remove that. And this is all spelled out in the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution, right? It says that you can't search or seize anyone's papers without showing probable cause in a court of law. So 
under the Patriot Act, it says the FBI doesn't need to go to court anymore and doesn't need to show evidence and doesn't need to prove that a crime has occurred or is likely to occur. It just says that they can go to their printer and print out their own, essentially, search warrant. And all they have to claim is that the information that they think they'll get will be relevant to some investigation. And this is like a huge radical departure from 200 and something years of American jurisprudence and, and legal precedent. And the thing is, the American system is based on English common law going back like a thousand years or something. So this is really like a, a huge departure from the system that we were all taught about in school. And when I looked at this letter that they gave me, the other question that I asked the agent besides what about my lawyer, can't I talk to my lawyer, was uh, uh, why isn't, like, where's the judge's signature? Why isn't this thing signed by a court? And uh, he didn't, he just didn't answer me on that. Like, I got, I got no answers from the agent. So the, the irony is I'm not a lawyer. I never was. I took one law class as an undergrad at, a, at the City University of New York, like a public college. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, not a prestigious, it's not Harvard, it's not Yale, it's like City University. Uh, but, but like I, in like one minute of like reading this letter, I already hit on two of the major constitutional problems with what they were trying to do. And then I, I did eventually sign the receipt because I wanted the guy to like leave. And so he didn't want to leave unless I signed. So I signed his thing, he left, but then I'm sitting there with this letter and then I'm trying to decide what to do. It, it, I was lucky in that I had a lawyer that worked for my company uh, mostly doing boring stuff because I'd never had any excitement like this ever in 10 years of running the company. It had only been boring contracts and, you know, where do I put up the posters that's, that tell you about minimum wage or whatever, all the boring business law. I, I knew this lawyer. He was actually my friend before he ever became a lawyer. So like we had an actual personal relationship and I called him up, despite that the law, the letter said I could not tell any person. And I said I needed to meet with him. And he said, okay, let's meet so-and-so. So I went somewhere and met him. And I showed him this letter. But, you know, the letter said that I could not tell any person. And here I was, telling another person. But I knew from my one law class and from watching movies and TV all my life and having grown up in this country that you always have the right to a lawyer and they can't tell you that you can't talk to a lawyer. So I felt confident that it was my right to do that. But at the same time, the letter was very plain, very clear, very explicit that I was not to tell any person. Uh, so I knew I was also in violation of what the FBI, the entire FBI was telling me what to do and like one of their top lawyers. So I was actually terrified in terms of doing this, but I didn't know what to do. And I didn't feel like I should just hand over. I knew I couldn't hand over the info on, on our client because it was just, it would be a massive violation of their rights. And 
I started to think about how a person that runs an internet provider or a mobile phone company or, or a regular phone company has a huge responsibility when they're holding onto super private data. Um, and so it seemed to me, and, and I started to see, I started to see the big picture of what was happening in terms of the society's rule of law breaking down. And it seemed to me that this was obviously just not legitimate and they, they could not do this. So I asked this lawyer what to do. And he told me, you're completely right. This is not legitimate. This is, they, they cannot do this. The constitution forbids this. But you know what? Like he said, I'm, I'm just a simple business lawyer. I don't really do constitutional law. And you really need to talk to some specialists. And I told you when I started my internet provider that I had wanted to change the world and I wanted to work with people who were doing interesting stuff. And one of my clients was the New York Civil Liberties Union, which is the New York affiliate, the New York branch of the ACLU. And I hosted their site for free. They were one of many organizations whose websites uh, my company hosted for free just because we wanted to help them in any way we could. And we would do consulting for them, like help them figure out better ways to use email, have mailing lists, do this or that, you know, whatever. Just at, It's hard probably for people to understand. But at that time, organizations like didn't even have websites or email. And so I was trying to convince them that they needed to start to use these tools. Because the NYCLU was our client, I was able in one phone call to get on the phone with them. They knew who I was. And I was able in this one initial phone call to get on the phone with their legal director. And I was sitting there with my lawyer and we both called this legal director guy and we were trying to explain to him what happened. And he said, get in a taxi right now and come down here and bring the thing with you. And so we did. But it started to get really scary. So we go down to the financial district, way downtown in Manhattan, which is where their offices are. And we go up in this elevator to like the 18th floor or something. And we end up in this guy's office. And this guy's like, I don't know, 65, 70 years old, very serious lawyer. He's the legal director of this whole organization, the multi-million dollar civil liberties, uh, basically law firm, advocacy firm. And we show him this letter and he's completely shocked and he's never seen one. And he says, do you mind if I call another one of my colleagues in to, to look at this? And he calls the ACLU office, which is in the same building on a different floor. And a, a young lawyer comes downstairs the guy's like my age. So at the time, I'm like, how old am I? Uh, 32? I think I'm 32. Yeah. I believe I was 32 years old at that point. But this young lawyer comes down. He doesn't even have gray hair or anything. And I didn't, I was like, kind of like, eh, like, you know, I like the old, I like the older lawyer. I was like, I feel, I feel like this guy knows what he's doing. He's been around the block. This young guy came down, he was like my age, 
younger, maybe not even sure. It turned out though, that he was a super hotshot lawyer who was like number one in his class from, you know, Harvard law. Um, and he also said he had never before seen a national security letter. They knew that these things existed. They knew as part of the Patriot Act, they'd been wondering about it, but they had never seen one and nobody had ever brought one to them. These guys said they wanted to take some time to discuss the whole thing with their colleagues and they would get back to us. And the long story short, they came back to me a couple of days later and they said, we think you have a super strong constitutional law case here where you could challenge the constitutionality of what, what the FBI has done. And not only what was at stake was not only is the practice of using national security letters instead of court court overseen warrants potentially unconstitutional. They said they believed 100% that it was unconstitutional, but that the entire Patriot Act could be overturned. And the whole thing could be ruled unconstitutional and basically repealed. So there was a huge amount of stuff at stake because so many things that the government was doing at that time in terms of spying on everyone, like all the stuff, a lot of the stuff that Ed Snowden was talking about was all enabled by the changing of the laws and the weakening of the systems of checks and balances that was done by the Patriot Act. And they said that if I wanted to bring a lawsuit against the FBI and the Department of Justice, that they would be happy to represent me pro bono, like meaning for no charge. But it was up to me. And like, I was the one ultimately at risk, not them. And of course, the difficulty in doing this is that the letter still said that I couldn't tell anyone that I'd gotten the letter. So if you can't tell anyone, but I've just now in this story that I've told you, I've gone and told my lawyer and then we went and called the legal director of NYCLU who then called someone from a, another organization, the ACLU, and they brought their lawyer in. So now it's like I've told three different people. I've broken this order three times. And now we're talking about going to court, telling a judge, telling the, the, the judge's clerks and filing this case and doing all these things where it was pretty obvious that the FBI was telling me just don't tell anyone and shut up. I had to think long and hard about it because I, I kind of figured I was possibly ending my own life and maybe going to just spend the rest of my life in prison or something because not because I thought I was doing anything wrong, but just because the government seemed to be acting in an extremely, they were, they were using like demonstrative violence where they were like making examples out of people to make everyone stay, keep in line. And I thought I might be sort of extending my neck out to the point where I would be made an example of. But, uh, you know, I was younger at that time and I had less to risk than I do now. And so I decided to go for it. But I didn't know at that time that, that this was going to last for like 12 years or however long it lasted. I kind of thought that it was going to take a couple of months, maybe a few months. And so what happened was like, we went to court 
but of course I couldn't go to court because the whole lawsuit then was in the name of John Doe. So it couldn't even have my name on it. So I couldn't actually go to court because I couldn't admit that I was, I was John Doe. Um, and we win. Like they make the, the ACLU makes these arguments, national security letters violate the first amendment because they put a lifelong gag order on you that never ends. And that's called a prior restraint of free speech. And that's been ruled unconstitutional in the past and landmark constitutional law cases. It's a violation of the fourth amendment to the constitution, which is the one about searches and seizures because they were able to seize records and papers, private papers without going before a court and showing probable cause. And it violates the Fifth Amendment. The Fifth Amendment, usually people think about the part about the right to not self-incriminate, but it also uh, it also says that you have the right to uh, <clears throat> legal defense or to the right to uh, you know legal representation. And by telling you that you could not tell any person that you got the letter, pretty much precludes you from being able to talk to a lawyer. Now. Of course, when I when I did this whole thing of like talking to the lawyers and then engaging the lawyers to bring this lawsuit, like I I I asserted my First Amendment rights and I asserted my Fifth Amendment rights and I didn't do what they told me. I I didn't I ignored the fact that they told me I couldn't do that. Um, but I I pretty much figured I was screwed because of that. And so that's I guess part of what I meant by earlier in our discussion, I think before this, before this was officially the interview, but what I was saying about waiting for the other shoe to drop or just living with stress and, and fear and tension for extended periods of time and how <clears throat> maybe in some ways it prepared me for the pandemic because, you know, it's pandemic is scary. Like the case literally went up and then down and then backwards and forwards. And, and then, and then I basically stopped for a period of time when I got, I got a partial, like I, I sort of got a partial win and I decided to just take a break from it for a while after like 10 years, uh, right around the time when my kid was born. And then after I sort of got, I re I got my wind back, you know, I caught my breath and then I decided to come back to it because I still was not able to, I, I was not able to fully tell the story because I was still under a partial gag order. Uh, and then I spent the last three years or so, uh, of the case working with a legal clinic at Yale Law School. So it's run by law students at like the top law school in the country, supervised by attorneys who are law professors. As a learning experience for the young, soon-to-be attorneys, the law students, uh, sued the government on my behalf to have them release me completely from the gag order. And in 2016, I fully won that case. We, we discovered later through reporting on national security letters that like just in a, in a two-year two period, they put out uh, like 220,000 national security letters. If you do the math, that's like one letter per like, somewhere between 1,000 and 1,500 people in the United States. And the claim is that every single one of those either had to do with counter-espionage 
like trying to catch uh, Russian spies or something, or counterterrorism. So to me, that already seems a little bit unbelievable on the surface, that there could be that many suspects in the country for those two narrow things. Uh, but, but it turned out through reporting that the Department of Justice was forced to do by Congress that a lot of those national security letters actually were super broad blanket orders for data. So it wouldn't just be like you, Henry, and your phone records. It would be, this is a real example, like a list of everyone that, that was in Las Vegas over New Year's Eve. You know what I mean? So like one letter, you would assume, my, my original assumption, 225,000 letters divided by the population of the country is one per 1,500 or 1,000 people or something like that. And that's if you assume a one-to-one -one relationship of a letter to a person. But when it turns out that some of the letters were for like hundreds of thousands of people's data, or some of them were for like the phone records of 10,000 people or something, it turns out that they were getting basically everyone in the whole country's information with these letters and evading the constitution's requirements for like checks and balances on abuse. So that is like the central issue of why national security letters are bad because law enforcement and, and, and the intelligence community, undoubtedly, I won't deny that they need to, they need to gather evidence when there's crimes that have happened or are likely to happen. You know, I think you'd have to be pretty radical to disagree with law enforcement ever having any rights to gather data. I mean, you know, murders need to be stopped, kidnappings need to be stopped, terrorism needs to be stopped. Of course, I'm, I'm totally on board with that. The problem, though, is that the system was set up with a very carefully calibrated set of checks and balances to prevent abuse. And the Patriot Act basically got rid of a lot of those oversights and checks and balances in, in the interest of expediency, is what they said. And it's probably true. They, they said, well, we, we, we can't wait. We can't wait one day for the judge to read our evidence and tell us yes or no. We just need it now. Uh, but the problem is that without checks and balances, uh, well, there's no, it's like having no, no safety net, no, no backup parachute, you know, it, it, it's, it's bound to lead to abuse. And, and it did, it led to massive abuses. So the cool thing about the case was a lot of abuse was exposed and became public knowledge. A good thing about the case was that judges repeatedly ruled national security letters to be unconstitutional. Uh, but a bad thing is that because we couldn't get to the Supreme Court, in part because what the government did was withdraw the letter, they said, essentially, and it's, it reminds me of like a kid playground game kind of thing, like do-over. You know what I mean? They said, okay, we're taking back the letter. We withdraw the letter we gave you asking for the data. So now you don't have standing to go to court and say that we're illegally searching anymore because we withdraw that letter. So now 
the only person that could maybe bring a challenge like that would be one of the other people who'd received the other 220,000 letters. And that, that was just in a two-year period. You know, most of those probably went to places like AT&T or Comcast or Verizon or banks or hotels or umpteen number of other types of businesses that could get these letters. But none of them ever said anything about it. I was the only person to ever say anything about it or bring attention to the fact that this was being done or to challenge whether this was legal or legitimate or not. All the other recipients of these letters just handed over the data. Now, the unfortunate thing about this whole case is because we couldn't get to the Supreme Court, that means that despite that multiple judges said it was unconstitutional, it doesn't actually stick. Like it's not a binding ruling on the whole country. The, the judge that ruled that here in New York, I think it was technically binding on the Second Circuit, which is like New York and Connecticut, and I'm not sure what other states are in the Second Circuit, maybe some New England states, I'm not sure, maybe New Jersey. <clears throat> but the, the, the ruling was then sort of stayed, I think they call it staying it, like it means that he says, this is unconstitutional, but I'm not going to enforce on the FBI that they can't issue these letters anymore pending their appeal. So they, they, they were gonna appeal to the next level of court. And then in the middle of, between those appeals, Congress amended the law and they changed it. They made a couple of little tweaks. So what that meant was by the time we got to the second level of court, they said, well, you know, the law that you started suing about in 2004 doesn't exist anymore. Now there's this new amended law so you need to go back to step one. This was six years into it. They said, you gotta go back to step one and, and remake your argument based on that the law is now different. So that's what I mean about them pulling the rug out from under me and doing all kinds of stuff that I couldn't do. I couldn't just say, I withdraw, you know, now, <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I, I'm gonna rob a bank and now I'm under, I'm on trial for robbing the bank. And I'm going to say, well, I withdraw my robbery. I, I, I no longer want to rob the bank. So therefore, you have no beef with me anymore. That's kind of what they did to me. Anyway, long story short, uh, this is why I do the Institute now and work on technical solutions because uh, litigation is really hard. It's really extremely time consuming. It's extremely stressful. And it's not, uh, it's not, necessarily fair to the small guy. I remember when I went and I spoke at the CCC, which is like a German hacker conference and used to be in Berlin at the time I went, it was in Berlin. It's in Germany always, but different cities now. It was the first time I really spoke in public about this experience. It was the first time I ever told everyone about it. I spoke on a stage in front of like 3,500 people or something in a huge auditorium. And I was terrified. And then after the speech, someone came up to me and told me that in Germany, because of their modern new constitution, unlike our old one, they could they didn't have to like prove standing. Like in the US, you have to you have to show that you've been injured by a law before you can challenge it. They said in Germany, you can just go into, into this special constitutional court, which is right at the top and has a side door where you don't have to climb the ladder of all the different levels of court. And you can just say, this law is unconstitutional. 
You don't have to prove that you've been affected by it. You don't even have to prove that the law has been used. So I, I remember learning that other countries, court systems, that, that I couldn't have been, as, as I explained, I told this whole story in, in a long form. Uh, all these people who were German told me, oh, like in this country, you, they couldn't have pulled the rug out from under you like that because you don't, you don't have the same, we just have a, they just have a different system. Thank you for sharing that entire story. I think that yeah. it's, it's admirable what you did. I don't think, I, I mean, you kind of proved that almost no one actually does stand up to it, right? <laughs> so out of the thousands of people who could have said something, none of them said anything. So it is kind of the, the one person fighting for the rest. I'm sure you're a fan of Snowden then, since I, I feel like there are a few similarities to what you had to go through to Snowden. I think in in hindsight, your life wasn't necessarily as on the line as you might as Snowden might have been. True. But I feel like when you were in the moment, there's no way you could have been able to tell that. As far as you knew, it could have been you might have had to flee to Russia as well. True. Thankfully, I wasn't under. Uh, I never agreed to keep secrets for anyone. I was just a regular citizen uh, off the street. But yeah, I uh, I watched the movie about him the other day. That there's like a fictionalized one. I don't know if you've seen that one. Have you seen it? It's so on the, Netflix. The one with the Rubik's Cube where he throws the Rubik's Cube. And... Well, well, I think everything must have the Rubik's Cube, right? Because that's supposedly <laughs> part of the story. But yeah, it was like... Yeah, uh, that's the one I saw. The one with actors. It's like a, it's like a dramatized one. Um, it was really good, I thought. Um, no, there's a, lot to, there's a lot to relate to there. Uh, I mean, it's, it's also extremely different from my story just because like, I, I was never... <clears throat> gung-ho like that I, I didn't want to be special forces and join the cia or whatever but the but the secrecy part is relatable you know like the the whole time i was under this gag order i never told my parents that this was happening to me and i and i lived with girlfriends and never told them uh what was going on and i never told my best friends and you know it, it was like it was super weird internalizing that stuff did you have to tell them you, you had some crazy ex that you had to keep going to court for <laughs> yeah like no i mean i couldn't I, well first of all i i in all the 10 years of court i never went to court except for one time like it was never safe for me to go to court because they were closed sessions of court where they 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 wouldn't let uh random viewers in like in a normal court session like anyone can just come in and listen or watch reporters people off the street but these were closed sessions so if they let me in i would have to sort of say who i was or what was my business there and i wasn't allowed to identify myself so i never got to go to any of the court things i just heard the stories later only the lawyers could go the only time i was ever able to go was when the second circuit uh, appeals court heard the case and at that point they knew that like all these entire law school classes were going so I was in a like standing room only spillover room with like 500 law students or something. And I kind of just looked like one of them. So that was the only time I ever got to go to court. Other than that, like it was all just stories I heard. Um, but so, yeah, no, there, there was quite a bit of secrecy that I had to keep. And I was afraid, um, I, I obviously like his was way different and like maybe they were going to kill him and maybe they still are. I don't know. It's that's super scary, but also, I don't know, at that time, uh, this post 9-11 time, it was also a very crazy time. So yeah, there's, 
I, I can relate to parts of the story in ways that probably not everyone can. My, my, I guess my final fun question for you, and I, I mentioned it earlier, I, I, was, I, was, I went on a run with a friend this morning, and uh, we, we talk about Tesla, Elon, and SpaceX a lot because they're always on the news. And uh, so we were talking about Starlink. Yeah. And so we were just talking about how, you know, Starlink, pretty much the core mission of Starlink is to bring internet accessibility to more people who don't normally get internet, which is eerily similar to the Catholic hotspot. Um, so I guess I just, I'm more curious, what are your thoughts on Starlink? I know some people don't agree with the satellite side of things, but it kind of ties in with the Calyx mission. And do you see it complementing things? Do you see it almost being a competitor? What are your thoughts on that whole business? I mean, like, I'm not, I don't, I I don't see it as a competitor because I don't, I don't see their, I, I just don't think of what the Institute does in terms of competition, you know, like I, I want I want ideological goals to to happen. I want uh, one of the things we were against is what's called the digital divide. The digital divide means some people can get good internet, fast broadband, and many, if not most, of the world can't. Um, you know, there's all these studies that talk about young children, their education people's economic opportunities, um, so many things that are now becoming increasingly tied to access to resources, like online resources. Um, So to the extent that anyone builds any technology that brings more people online, that's something that we strongly support and we, we want that to happen. There has been... There was a, there was a guy who reminds me of you years ago who uh, had this plan that he was going to buy this satellite. It was a satellite that was already in space, and he tried to raise all this money to buy this satellite, and he was going to make it beam internet to much of the world. It was just one satellite, and and this guy, he I don't think he pulled off this idea, but he he was a young guy with big dreams that thought big. And he wanted to do this and it didn't work. And so it's like Elon is not the first person to think of this idea. He's the first person to really get, I think, this far. Uh, and it's exciting. Um, I think that what, what, what the, Cal- the Calix Institute's mission and Tesla's mission or SpaceX or I don't even know what company umbrella the satellite internet thing is under, uh, but, but Elon's mission, let's say, I think he wants to create change in the world, but he but it's making a ton of money is integrally integrally tied into what he's trying to do. And so if it was up to me, like I would like to see the global south. I would like to see Africa, which doesn't have fiber optics laid across it like the US or Europe. I would like to see South America, the Middle East, uh you know, Southeast Asia, like parts of the underserved parts of the world that people call it the global South. I would like to see those parts of the world get internet and for people in those countries to be able to have increased educational and economic uh, and social opportunities that they thus far haven't had. And so I worry that SpaceX or whoever it is that runs, uh, that owns 
Elon's satellite project won't be motivated. They, I, I feel like their desire to make lots of money won't motivate them to help the poorest people in the world, which makes sense. You know, I'm not, I'm not casting aspersions on them. I'm not judging them. I'm just saying like for profit entities, especially ones with stock, uh, they have like a legal requirement and they have a fiduciary duty to make as much money for their shareholders as they can. And generally speaking, you know, helping destitute poor people is not like the fastest way to making tons of money for your shareholders. So that's just an unfortunate reality. Um, so the thing is, you know, I'm also a huge proponent of the open source uh, world and, 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 you know, everyone knows about open source software, but there's also open source hardware and there's all kinds of interesting collaborative things that countries can do together. Um, I would like to see something maybe exactly like what Elon is doing, but maybe run by the United Nations where there could be like an international, uh, satellite internet service that would, that would cover the whole planet or something like that. You know, I, I, I would like to see like, uh, a more nonprofit, egalitarian, uh, help help everyone pull themselves up by their bootstraps version of what he's doing, and I think you know just experimenting with this technology is a great thing. Uh, developing the whole set of like the way they have a grid of the satellites to cover all the different areas and and zooming around on on their uh, orbits uh, is great. Like this is. And, and showing that he can do it for super cheap is, is incredible. Like, like everything, like, like solar power, the cost of solar power plummeted in, in recent years and decades. Like, I think the cost of satellites will also plummet um, as, as people figure out how to do this more and more inexpensively. So, like, I'm excited by the technology. I think it's great. Personally, I would like to put a different spin on it. Uh, the spin of trying to help uh, people who who don't have as many options um, and who are not as rich. I don't know how much you remember things. I guess people like me say in the in the in the Calyx Matrix room, but pretty early on, I thought it was just the OS because that's what I was mostly looking at. I was mm -hmm, looking at different mm -hmm. Android ROMs for our community. And then I eventually found the hotspot, and I was like, gosh darn it. If I had known about this six months ago, this was exactly what I was looking for. Sure. Because I was looking at my monthly budget, and sure. I'm, I like living frugally. Sure. I, I like buying the bare minimum that I need, and I like living a pretty minimal lifestyle. And I was seeing this monthly bill for this crappy internet. Mm -hmm. I was thinking there has to be a better way. There has to be a way to get out of Comcast's one option ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I did find something extremely similar to, to Calyx. It's a hotspot. Mm -hmm. um, it's an upfront high cost. Mm -hmm. But you have to qualify for it. Uh-huh. And yep. I, I didn't qualify for it. Mm -hmm. So there I was just kind of limited with no options. And then yep. I finally found and I decided to just dis dish out the cash because I actually experimented going with just my mobile data plan for a whole month. I uh -huh. canceled Comcast. I yep. paid the upfront 
costs that you have to pay to cancel. Mm -hmm. And I tried to go a whole month on 12 gigabytes of data for all my devices. Uh -huh. It was How hard. Yeah. <laughs> it was not easy. Yeah. Um, and I think I ran out 27 days into the month. Oh, so, wow. Um, so you almost made it. Almost made it. But it's extremely challenging. And it's it, it does comfort me knowing that I'm in, I'm in a very privileged position where I get to just... I can pay the upfront cost to just cancel my Comcast and experiment for a month yeah. using some experimental thing. But that's the reality for a lot of people. A lot of people do have to live on possibly 12 gigabytes of data in the month. Oh, no. That's, not even, that's, not, that's not even the beginning of it. <laughs> the, the, the truly poor in the United States do not have internet. And they have to go to the public library or McDonald's or something like that to get online. Um, that's the reality of it. That's why um, a lot of the work that we're doing is with public libraries. And uh, I guess one part of the national security letter story I did not tell was that somewhere like after we after I won in court the first time, uh, a bunch of public librarians uh, in Connecticut, they saw news coverage of how I won and NSLs, the letters were declared unconstitutional, and they had also received one because the FBI was going to the public libraries and gathering all the library patron records. So they were going to know everything that everyone was doing in the libraries, what, what everyone was reading, what everyone was doing online on the internet terminals because they give free internet at the libraries. And they were just stockpiling all this data. And so they ended up joining they went to the ACLU as well. They saw ACLU was representing me, so they called ACLU. They ended up, uh, because Connecticut's part of the Second Circuit, when they, they also won, and then when, we, when the government appealed, the courts put our cases together. So we became co-plaintiffs. It was Calix Internet Access, my old company, and these librarians. But at the time, we were called New York John Doe and Connecticut John Doe, and we didn't know who each other were. Um, later, many years later, after I got out of the gag order, I finally met these people and, uh, we're still friends today and we have this bond over this shared experience, <clears throat> but they were lucky. They were four librarians, uh, whereas I was just me by myself. So they at least had each other, uh, but they also couldn't tell their families, couldn't tell anyone. Uh, and so ever since then, I've always felt really strongly about public libraries and doing work with people that rely on public libraries for internet because uh when you say like oh poor people have only 12 gigs of mobile data like no 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 that's like that's like 100 bucks a month i think like 12 gigs of mobile data. yeah i'm, I'm more, <laughs> you know i guess uh, some context i guess yes i'm more privileged than i even mm -hmm. give myself credit for mm -hmm. but also um i use a prepaid plan so it's tw the 12 gigabyte plan is like thirty five dollars a month. Oh, so okay. I, well, that's that's actually a, a slamming deal. You have yeah, a really yeah. good deal. So, so but I, still, I, but still, to the truly poor, like there's there's people, there's all these people that live in like New Orleans and they make like nine thousand a year or something, and so when they want to, they have to go online to like renew their public benefits. They have to go to the library and they don't have a computer and they don't have internet at home, and so that's when like I get more perspective on what it really means to be super poor. Uh, it means you don't you don't have internet at home. So now when they're, all the kids have to homeschool because of remote learning, what do those people do now? 
um, I don't know. I saw a news story a few months ago, a couple of months ago about these kids who came from a household like that, where, you know, their, their parents were like domestic workers or something like, you know, cleaning, cleaning offices or something. And these kids went and sat, the, the public library was closed because of COVID. And these kids sat on the ground outside the public library with their iPad or something so that they could do their online schooling. They just sat on the ground on the street outside the library. And this is like, you know, this is what the digital divide, that's what I'm talking about when I'm saying the digital divide. Like, like here in New York City, we can, many, many people here, especially if you live in a big building, you can get Fios, you can get gigabit bi-directional. Um, and it's like 79 bucks or 50 bucks or whatever the cost is. And like in other parts of the country, they just won't build it because it's not profitable. I guess that's part of also what I was alluding to with, with Elon, that he can only make his satellites focus on some parts of the world. He can't just blanket the whole world. And he, they're going to choose to blanket the parts of the world that have money to pay for it, as opposed to the ones that barely have anything. So anyway, uh, it, it wraps a lot of political stuff into what we're trying to do and what he's trying to do. And, and like, like I said, I, I, I'm not slamming Elon SpaceX or any of the, what they're trying to do. I get, you know, I, I understand and accept that companies exist to make money. And like, I'm, I'm at peace with that. That's cool. I think, you know, there, there are sometimes companies like let's say Ben and Jerry's ice cream or something who have this other mission where like Newman's popcorn is like half a charity, half a business. I get that. But that's not what Elon's doing. He's a normal, he's, he's, he's a businessman and that's cool. But like I said, I would like to see that technology be used for other purposes. Cause I, I just feel that there is a lot of need. There's a lot of people that need stuff in the world and that could be helped a lot by given uh, a more equal footing where they could try to start online businesses or work for do get, get work online in other places that pay more stuff like that. So Kind of a humorous question. I'm mm -hmm. not actually being serious here, mm -hmm. but I mean, if there is somewhat of a real answer, it'd be kind of entertaining to hear. But if Starlink ever acquired T-Mobile, yeah. is there ever a possibility for Calyx to fall under the Starlink program? Possibly, sure. That would be great. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Let's see what happens. I mean, I would love, I would love that if we could, if we could somehow get access to different last mile technologies like that. That'd be cool. That'd be super exciting. Um, but that's okay. That's all I really have for you today. Okay. So if you have any last comments or any last things you want to say to the to the community and the audience, just feel free to say them. You know, I live in New York City. A lot of what people are focused on in New York City is like trying to make as much money as they can. And sounds like Silicon Valley. Yeah, um, that's sort of just like the lifestyle. I mean, there's also a lot of regular people here. I think the average income in New York City is like $75,000 average family income. But that's offset a lot by the, the Mike Bloomberg's and all the Wall Street dudes that make like 200 million. I think that that drives the average up by a lot. I think that there's a lot of families in New York City that make 30 grand, a lot of families that make 20 grand. And I I I always like had opportunities to go work in banks or to go, uh, there was a lot of Linux sysadmin work you could do at trading, stock trading organizations, but uh, 
for me, I always felt like I wanted to do something that mattered a little more that I could sort of look back on when I'm older, I'm already older and, and, and feel like, uh, what I work on matters. And so I just want to encourage people to think more about that in, in their lives. Like when they decide what they want to do with their life, uh, to just realize that like life is going to be hard no matter what you choose to do. But like, I think it, it gives a lot of satisfaction to me anyway. And, and I want to encourage other people to try to find things that they can work on that they, that they shouldn't, I'm, I'm not saying take a vow of poverty and, and don't, don't, don't enjoy life and, and, and don't have anything, but, but to find something to work on that somehow is a, is a positive contribution for your own benefit and, and like, enjoyment of life just just to give your life more meaning um that's that's one of the things that i i like most about how my life is now that that i feel like i'm sure that there's other people that sacrifice more there's other people that uh do more good but um but i do feel like my intention is to do good things and to make things better and and i want to encourage other people to try to do things like that with their lives as well well um it's been a pleasure getting to know you i've wanted to talk to you for a long time. Your whole story fascinates me. So um, thank you so much for your time. This has been a crazy long talk. This is almost yeah. guaranteed going to have to be split up into different for sure. videos because it's going to be over two hours. For sure. Um, so thank you for your time. Um, it's been a pleasure. And definitely, if you ever have any questions or anything comes up or any updates, just feel free to let me know. Absolutely. Thanks, Henry. Yep. Nice to chat with you. Yep, you too. And that, my friends, was the interview. I want to thank you for listening, and definitely go check out the Calyx Institute's website in the description. I love my Calyx hotspot, and we're actually posting a review of that Calyx hotspot in the next couple weeks. So make sure to subscribe to us on YouTube, Library, or PeerTube to catch that review and what their unlimited LTE hotspot is like day to day. Thank you again for your time, and this has been a Surveillance Report special. See you next time.